Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 34. I'm your host, Jack Henneman. We are recording this episode very early in the morning from Austin, Texas on Friday the 13th of August, 2021. May the day not live up to the myth. I don't know how much more bad luck we want to absorb just now. Once again, music for the writing of today's episode came from the Guardians of the Groove, WWOZ, in New Orleans. This episode is the second on our series on Sir Francis Drake. Last week, we revisited the catastrophic battle of San Juan de Ulua in the harbor near Veracruz, Mexico, between the English trader pirate John Hawkins and arriving ships of the Spanish treasure fleet. Francis Drake, still with no sir at the front of his name, had limped back to England in one of the two surviving ships, arriving in January 1569. He fumed at the duplicity of the Viceroy of Mexico, who had breached a guarantee of safe conduct he had given the English. Drake vowed to wage war against the Spanish and vex Philip of Spain from one end of his realm to the other. It was not only Drake who wanted to annoy Philip. In November 1568, as Drake and the fellow survivors of San Juan de Lua were struggling home across the northern Atlantic, five Spanish ships, carrying the payroll for the soldiers under the command of the Duke of Alba in the Netherlands, ran into a storm and Huguenot privateers in the English Channel. Seeking any port in a storm, as it were, Four of the Spanish payroll ships, carrying gold worth about 85,000 pounds in English terms, sailed into Plymouth and the 5th into Southampton. Now we'll turn to John Sugden's narrative from his biography of Sir Francis Drake. Everyone knew the importance of those ships to Alba. The Duke's soldiers had not been paid for months and were growing mutinous and attempts to raise money by taxing the Netherlands were even then stiffening opposition to Spanish rule. The cargoes of the treasure ships were moved ashore for safety, while the Spanish ambassador to England begged Elizabeth, as the ruler of a friendly nation, to supply an escort which would enable Alba's money to reach its destination. The queen had her own ideas, however. She resented the pressure that the Spaniards levied on her by the arrest of English merchants in Madrid and Brussels. And when she learned that the Spanish money actually belonged to Genoese bankers who were loaning it to Alba, she demonstrated her defiance. Her government always needed money, and if the treasure were merely up for a loan, she would borrow it herself. It would not proceed to Alba at all. Whatever Elizabeth was playing at, she succeeded in raising tension to a new threshold. Alba's alternative to securing his treasure ships was a tax in the Netherlands that would multiply the outcry he had been sent to suppress. Just after Christmas, Alba delivered a counterstroke by seizing all English goods and ships in the Netherlands. However, there was a considerable amount of property and shipping belonging to the Netherlands in England at the time, and Elizabeth quickly replied by impounding it. The final round of tit-for-tat reprisals was an embargo on English vessels and Spanish ports. But Elizabeth undoubtedly had the best of the exchange. She still had Alba's money, 
and with French privateers in the channel, more Spanish ships were likely to fall into her hands. It was in this context that Francis Drake and John Hawkins, days apart, returned to England in January 1569 with news of their voyage and the betrayal and shootout at San Juan de Lua. The West Country men joined in the outrage and petitioned for a commission for reprisal from the Crown. Elizabeth and William Cecil did not, as yet, grant it. The payroll confiscation crisis had strained relations between Spain and England. And the year before, Elizabeth had promised Philip that English privateers would stay out of the Indies. Oh, that's a pie-crust promise. Easily made, easily broken. This was not the time to escalate. Drake had to be patient. We do not know much about Drake's activities in 1569, but he seems to have established himself in the Plymouth area, and he married Mary Newman, of whom little is known, on July 4th, 1569. He must have been pitching West Country investors on a new voyage, because by 1570, Drake had rounded up two ships, the Swan and the Dragon, and was headed to the West Indies with about 50 men. Per Sugden, Drake was bent on piracy. There was not a thread of authority for his raid, nor a commission from his government that would have made him a privateer. Drake's war had begun. Nevertheless, there are scant footprints in the record of Drake's voyage of 1570. He may have taken one Spanish ship, but that year the Spanish recorded few losses in the region, and most of them were at the hands of the French. Drake seems to have returned to England toward the end of the year without notable booty, entering the English record, or missing from the Spanish. In later years, Drake would describe that first trip as a reconnaissance mission. Whether that was in fact his purpose or a post hoc rationalization for a financial loss isn't clear. It does seem, however, that it was on the 1570 voyage that Drake discovered the Achilles heel of the Spanish supply chain. The silver and gold of South America, Bolivia, Chile, and Peru, traveled to Spain over a tortuous route. Pack animals would take the treasure to the Pacific Coast ports in South America, and from there, it would sail to Panama. There it would be unloaded and packed across the mountains of Panama by mule train, weather permitting, the cargo would be loaded onto boats on the Chagres River, which flowed into the Caribbean about 40 miles west of the port town of Nombre de Dios. Weather not permitting, the mule train would continue over land all the way to Nombre de Dios. The annual treasure fleet, the Flota, would arrive at Nombre de Dios in the spring, load up the treasure, and converge with the Veracruz Flota at Havana, before sailing home. French privateers, who at this point were much more numerous in the region, had begun to understand all of this, and in 1570, Drake figured it out for the English. And he learned other very important information, too. First, Number de Dias was barely defended. When Drake saw the town, it had a crude bulwark on the beach, protected by a few cannon. Not nearly enough for the treasure house of the world, as Drake once described it. There was no regular garrison. And when no fleet was in port, it was a sleepy outpost of the empire, and maybe a few hundred people in wooden houses languishing in the tropical heat. Second, Drake learned a new word, 
cimarrones. This was the Spanish term for escaped black slaves who had liberated themselves from the Spanish and were operating as guerrillas against their former masters in the jungles of Panama. If anybody hated the Spanish more than Francis Drake, it was the Cimarrones. This, too, would turn out to be a handy bit of information. The voyage of 1570 set up two subsequent raids by Drake on Nombre de Dios and the treasure route across the Isthmus. The first, in 1571, established Drake as a bold and creative leader and was profitable enough that it put Drake in a position to fund later voyages. The second, in 1572 and 73, would turn Drake into a national hero at home and an infamous enemy of the Spanish. I'm going to spend some time on these because they reveal how it was that Drake was able to put together his very consequential mission of 1577 to 1580, and triumph in the doing of it. Drake and the Swan were back on the coast of Panama by mid-February 1571, just as Don Luis was traitorously, or patriotically, killing unarmed Jesuits at the banks of the Chesapeake. Go listen to episode 30 if you want to hear that gruesome story. On the 21st of February, Drake and his raiders came across a Spanish merchant ship anchored in a small harbor called Pontoons, which sits in the stretch between the mouth of the Chagres River and Nombre de Dios. The English loaded up a shallow draft pinnace with perhaps 15 men and a couple of light cannons and approached the frigate, proposing to parley. Though essentially unarmed, the Spanish resisted, so the English attempted to board and kill a couple of the Spanish defenders and a black slave. Desperate to separate from the pinnace, the Spanish cut their anchor cable and drifted ashore. The crew bailed over the side and ran into a mangrove swamp. Meanwhile, the English had spotted a second frigate nearby and captured that as well, its crew also fleeing. Drake's men ransacked both ships, found little of value, and left the following note. Captain and crew of this frigate, we are surprised that you ran from us in that fashion and later refused to come talk with us under our flag of truce, knowing us and having seen evidence a few days past that we do no ill to none under our flag of truce, but only wish to speak with you. And since you will not come courteously to talk with us without evil or damage, you will find your frigate spoiled by your own fault. And to any who courteously may come to talk with us, we will do no harm under our flag. And who does not, his be the blame. And do not think we are afraid of those ships. By the help of God, it shall cost them their lives before they prevail over us. Now you have proof that it would have been better had you come to talk with us. For in the frigate you had not the value of four silver reals. Done by the English, who are well disposed if there be no cause to the contrary. If there be cause, we will be devils rather than men. Now I think it is fair to say that Drake cracked Drake up. One can almost imagine him grinning as he wrote that note, and yet he also meant it. Drake would demonstrate over many years that he would not kill gratuitously, and would treat the crews of even Spanish prizes respectfully and even generously. The next day, Drake sailed for the mouth of the Shoggers, and over the next weeks would travel, presumably by oared pinnace, far into the interior and therefore deep into Spanish territory. He reached 
Venta de Cruces, which then was the point in central Panama where northbound goods that had traveled by mule would be loaded onto the boats and southbound goods would transfer to the mules. Drake missed the treasure shipments, but on the docks captured merchandise worth supposedly tens of thousands of pesos. By mid-spring, Drake was back in the Caribbean, lying in wait along the coast of Panama between the river and Nombre de Dios. Over the next six weeks, he captured 12 or 13 vessels plying the coast. And then on May 8, grabbed a frigate from Cartagena bearing the king's correspondence for Peru and Panama. Drake put the prisoners ashore, eluded the frigate, and tossed Philip's letters overboard. Then he went back to the Shoggers and grabbed four more ships, at which point his hold was full, and he headed for home. I must confess that it's not obvious to me why Drake destroyed the royal mail rather than reading it or keeping it to turn over to Elizabeth's spymaster, Sir Francis Walsingham. Perhaps that carried some risk. Maybe it would have constituted definitive evidence of piracy against Drake that might have resulted in his sacrifice in the event that Elizabeth needed to throw Philip a bone to avoid war. Maybe he didn't know Walsingham yet or know anyone else connected to the administration. Drake was not yet famous. In any case, I should have thought he would have wanted to know the contents, and maybe he did have Philip's mail read. I don't believe Drake knew Spanish himself, and the historical record merely doesn't show it in any way. Nobody knows for sure how much booty Drake stole during the spring of 1571, but if one adds up the sums claimed by the Spanish, which were probably exaggerated, they were the equivalent of 66,000 pounds in Elizabethan money. To put that in perspective, it was roughly equivalent to a fourth of the annual budget of the English government at the time. For a 21st century American pirate to pull off an equivalent feat, he or she would have to steal roughly $1.5 trillion. So piracy has definitely gotten more difficult, even if done digitally. In any case, in a few months, with a single ship and 30 men, Drake had seized at least 18 Spanish vessels and was well on his way to becoming a rich man. Drake's haul in 1571 was also more than his cousin John Hawkins had captured in three illicit trading missions in the 1560s. Stealing, it turned out, was more lucrative than smuggling and ransoming. Kids, that is not a life lesson. For starters, there was really no such thing as a permanent record in those days. In the summer of 1571, Philip II would receive his first correspondence warning of Drake and asking for stronger defenses along the Spanish main. Philip had no idea how big a problem Drake was about to become. Drake's success that year would inspire the first real wave of English piracy, the first of them leaving for the Indies within weeks of Drake's return in the fall of 1571. England's proxy war against Spain was heating up, and Drake was only getting started. The scene is Plymouth Sound, now May 24, 1572, exactly 25 years to the day before 100 English settlers would disembark for the first time at the place they would name Jamestown. Now let's return to John Sugden. 
Two small ships, the Pasco and the Swan, worked their way toward the open sea, carrying 73 men and boys bent upon a dangerous mission to the Caribbean. They were volunteers to a man, and all but one or two of them below 30 years of age, young and vigorous, capable of waging a new and deadlier phase of Drake's war. Francis Drake commanded from the Pasco while his younger brother John, who had invested 30 pounds in the adventure, was captain of the Swan. The desperate nature of the enterprise upon which they were bound was marked by the increased number of men Drake had recruited and the equipment he took with him. Three pinnaces for inshore work stored aboard in pieces, provisions for a year, and a plentiful supply of weapons and tools. Now, in the voyage home in the summer of 1571, Drake had spotted a concealed harbor along the coast of Panama or Colombia, with a narrow entrance and yet a deep draft. It was seemingly unsettled, yet the waters were full of fish and the shore was thickly populated with birds of many species. Drake gave it the name Port Pheasant, made note of its location, buried some supplies for future use, and resolved to return there and use it as a base for raiding the Spanish. On July 1572, Drake arrived at Port Pheasant, his presumably secret base, where he was greeted with disappointing news. There was a lead plate nailed to a large tree with a message. Captain Drake, if you fortune to come to this port, make haste away for the Spanish which you had with you here the last year have betrayed this place and taken away all that you left here. I departed from hence this present 7 of July, 1572. Your loving friend, John Garrett. So only five days before. Garrett was another West Country seaman and had apparently been guided to Port Pheasant by an English sailor who had served on Drake's mission the previous year. Drake had had Spanish prisoners along when he came upon Port Pheasant and subsequently released them. Obviously, they had squealed, although we do not know precisely how Garrett knew that Port Pheasant had been compromised. Regardless, Drake set up his base and went to work assembling the three pinnaces. While this was going on, three more ships entered the harbor. One turned out to be English under the command of James Rontz, an old shipmate of Drake's from the Hawkins days. He had been working the same coast and had captured two Spanish prizes. Rontz didn't have enough of his own men to keep the Spanish ships crewed for long periods. We do not know what happened to their original crews. So he asked to join up with Drake. Thusly reinforced, Drake set up his first attack on Number de Dios, moving his force to the northwest. In the wee hours of July 29th, Drake and around 70 of his men snuck up on Nombre de Dios in the three pinnaces. Drake's men captured the harbor's battery, comprised of six guns and only one man on duty, who ran off to warn the town when the English approached. Now back to Sudgan's description. Then Drake divided his men to storm the town. John Drake and John Oxenham were given 16 men to approach the marketplace from one of the flanks, and Drake himself advanced directly along the main street. As the party set off, they could already hear Nombre de Dios awakening before them in a cacophony of noise, shouts, drums beating up and down the streets, 
and the church bell pealing a frantic warning to the people of the town. With the firepikes flickering eerily aloft, Drake's company brazenly marched forward to the sound of drum and trumpet, as if they were a formidable array. At the southeast end of the marketplace that served as the town's center, the alcalde, the governor, had assembled a body of militia to withstand the corsairs. And when Drake's men poured into view, they were met by a volley of shot from the Spaniards. Most of the bullets struck the ground before the English, but one smashed into Drake's leg, and another killed his trumpeter on the spot. The pirates replied with their own shot and arrows and then surged forward ferociously, brandishing their pikes. At the same time, John Drake's company suddenly burst into the marketplace from another direction. It was too much for the Spanish. Terrified, they broke and fled precipitately from the town, some of them discarding their weapons as they ran. Drake's men had grabbed some prisoners and ordered them to lead the English to the governor's house, where they expected to find treasure. They were not disappointed. According to the English account of the expedition, they found, quote, a pile of bars of silver of, as near as we could guess, 70 foot in length, of 10 foot in breadth and 12 foot in height, piled up against the wall. Each bar was between 35 and 40 pounds in weight. At sight thereof, our captain commanded straightly that none of us should touch a bar of silver, but stand upon our weapons, because the town was full of people, and there was in the king's treasure house near the water's side more gold and jewels than all our four pinnaces could carry, which we would presently set some in hand to break open. In short, silver was not by weight all that valuable. Schlepping 40-pound bars of it to the small pinnaces would be exhausting, and all the while they would be vulnerable to Spanish counterattack. They needed gold, pearls, and jewels, all of which were much more valuable by weight than silver. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to his men, Drake was bleeding badly. The men dashed to the warehouse by the water through a sudden downpour. Drake ordered his brother John to break down the warehouse door while he took men to guard the approach from the marketplace. But as he stepped forward, Drake fainted. Only then did his men notice through the night rain that Drake was bleeding and that blood stained the water that filled his footprints. The English bound the wound and over Drake's protests, abandoned their efforts to break the door of the warehouse and carried him back to the pinnaces. They met their ships and sailed to the Bastimentos Islands, 180 miles west of Nombre de Dios, to lick their wounds and recover. They had captured no treasure, and now Nombre de Dios had been warned, was being reinforced, and the opportunity was lost. Now we have a moment that tells us something about Drake and even more about the chivalric practices that persisted long after the Middle Ages, but which are unimaginable now. The alcalde of Nombre de Dios purported to be worried about the slow recovery of his wounded, so he sent an emissary to the Bastimentos Islands to inquire of Drake if he was the same Drake who had raided the coast before and whether he had used poison arrows. Drake replied with a sort of light-hearted arrogance that we have already seen and which would become part of his legend. Quote, 
Our captain, although he thought this soldier but a spy, yet used him very courteously, and answered him to his governor's demands that he was the same Drake whom they met. It was never his manner to poison his arrows. They might cure their wounded by ordinary surgery, and that he wanted nothing but some of that special commodity which that country yielded, meaning treasure, to content himself and his company. And therefore he advised the alcalde to open his eyes, for before he departed, if God lent him life and leave, he meant to reap some of their harvest, which they get out of the earth, and send into Spain to trouble all the earth." Then Drake lavished gifts on the Spanish emissary, who protested that Drake had been so generous he had never been so honored in all his life. Drake recovered from the apparently dangerous wound with remarkable speed, and by August 13th, 449 years ago this very day, Drake's fleet, now abandoned by the less-than-stalwart Captain Arounce, appeared roughly 450 miles to the east at the entrance to the harbor of Cartagena. There he grabbed three prizes, but none of them had anything of value on board. News of Drake had traveled quickly, and the Spanish were moving everything of value on shore until he was neutralized. Sadly for the Spanish, Drake had a long career in front of him. Now, at Nombre de Dios, Drake's men had liberated a black African slave called Diego, who came along with the English when they left with the wounded Drake. Diego quickly attached himself to Drake as his personal servant. There's no evidence that Drake regarded Diego as a slave or that Diego was not free to go if he ever requested. Over many years, the two had become genuine and close friends, and Diego stayed with Drake on his circumnavigating voyage of 1577 to 1580. Diego was almost certainly the first black person to circumnavigate the planet. In the fall of 1572, Diego taught Drake what he needed to know about the Cimarrones, the escaped slaves who were waging war against the Spanish in Panama and Colombia. Diego told Drake that the Cimarrones knew the route the treasure took across the Isthmus and that they hated the Spanish so much he, Diego, was confident that they would help Drake. Drake dispatched Diego and his brother John to find the leaders of the Cimarrones, and after initial contacts, Drake arranged for fuller negotiations between the two groups. The Cimarrones, it turned out, knew all about Drake's raids against the Spanish, and after ever-expanding planning conferences, agreed to an alliance against the Spanish. The Cimarrones not only knew the route of the treasure, but its schedule. Because of seasonal rains, Drake calculated that he would have to wait at least five months before it would be propitious to attack the mule train. Having set his alliance with the Cimarrones, Drake spent the time between September 1572 in January 1573, attacking Spanish shipping along the coast, including a return visit to Cartagena. He recovered no treasure, but he did capture food and other essential supplies, all of which he needed to make it through the wet Caribbean winter. The winter was not without its losses, however. John Drake died near the base after a foolish and understrength confrontation with a Spanish ship while Francis was away at Cartagena. 
and in January, a pestilence swept through the ranks of Drake's men, suddenly and quickly killing more than a third of them. And notwithstanding the capture of many Spanish ships, they still had not found meaningful treasure to show for their months of toil. Just as morale was flagging and Drake had to worry about the perseverance of his crew, however, Cimarrone's scouts arrived at Drake's base in February to inform him that the spring flota had arrived at Nombre de Dios and the treasure was on the move. Drake, 13 of his men, 30 Cimarrones and their leader, known to us as Pedro, hiked into the heart of Panama, presumably along Cimarrone trails. Four days in, they came to a Cimarroni village whose residents supplied the party with maize, fruit, and meat and told them stories of Spanish atrocities against them. Another four days' march brought the raiders to the top of a mountain in the middle of the isthmus. There, the Cimarrones had built a viewing platform at the top of a tree with stairs cut into the huge trunk Pedro invited Drake to the top, and there he saw both the Caribbean Sea to the north, with which he was more familiar than most, and the Pacific Ocean to the south. History believes that at this moment, or at least because of this moment, Drake conceived of his great Pacific venture, which would cement his legacy as one of the greatest sailors in history. The group continued to the south, reaching the hills above Panama City. Drake and Pedro settled on a hidden place to camp, and one of the Cimarrones snuck into Panama City to gather information. The spy returned with the news that the treasurer of Lima himself was along, and that three mule trains laden with gold, silver, jewels, and victuals would soon leave for Nombre de Dios, and the flota arriving there. Drake and Pedro decided to move back toward Venta de Cruces in the middle of the isthmus, this was the town Drake had raided the previous year and set an ambush along the trail. In the event, the ambush was blown. One of the English, Robert Pike, had whiled away the long hours of the ambush site drinking whatever booze he happened to have. When the lead Spanish horseman came along, Pike forgot the orders to stay hidden until the mules arrived and jumped up before the Cimarrones with him could wrestle him back to the ground. The horseman bolted. And in the ensuing chaos, most of the mule trains, some distance back, turned around and escaped. Drake and Pedro's men captured a couple of mules bearing silver and moved into Venta de Cruces to make the best of a disappointing situation. At this point, probably early to mid-February 1573, Drake was looking like a failure, and his mission was headed toward financial ruin. Two very creative attacks on two very promising targets had failed, mostly, to be fair, because of very bad luck. And now the Spanish were alerted to all possibilities. The raiders returned with their small booty to the fort the Cimarrones had built along the coast. They were tired, and no doubt many of the English had had quite enough. The Cimarrones, however, rallied to build the morale of the English, tending to the sick and wounded and making them new shoes. Pedro wasn't going to give up so easily. He was going to go on hurting the Spanish in any way he could, and whether or not Drake continued. So neither was Drake. Drake and his ships spent a month or so patrolling the coast and captured a couple of Spanish ships, again recovering food and supplies, but only small quantities of gold. 
Then on March 23rd, Drake spotted another potential target that on closer inspection turned out to be French. The captain, Guillaume Le Testu, was Huguenot and told Drake that he'd been looking for him because he was almost out of water and food. Drake sent supplies across and then told Le Testu to follow him to his secret base where he would be replenished. In deep and chivalric gratitude, Le Testu sent Drake a case of pistols and an extraordinary gilt scimitar that Le Testu had received from Admiral Gaspard de Coligny, the leader of the French Protestants. The French shared news of Europe with the English. Drake would have learned for the first time of the massacre of the Protestants in France and the successes of the Dutch sea beggars against Spanish rule in the Netherlands. He also came to appreciate that Le Testu is a serious and accomplished seaman and politically well-connected. Drake and Pedro invited Le Testu and his French into the alliance, with the English and the French agreeing to split any new plunder 50-50. The Cimarrones, by the way, had no practical use for the treasure. They were all about hurting the Spanish in any way they could, and were therefore delighted that the French would join them in their campaign, the more the merrier. Recall that at Venta de Cruces in central Panama, the treasure would either be loaded on boats to sail down the Chagres River, and then about 40 miles along the coast to Nombre de Dias, or it would proceed overland by trail to Nombre de Dias directly. The Cimarrones had learned that a treasure-laden mule train was moving along the trail, so Drake and his allies decided to attack it shortly before it got to town. On March 31, 1573, the mixed force of English, French, and Cimarrones crept through the jungle to the road only a mile from the town and again waited in ambush. On April 1st, they were rewarded. Nearly 200 heavily loaded mules came along the road that morning, guarded by 45 soldiers. Drake sprung the ambush perfectly, and the Spanish soldiers fled after token resistance. One black man had died, and, sadly, the testu had been shot in the gut. The corsairs fell upon the mules and captured, at least for the moment, gold, silver, and other treasure worth an estimated 200,000 pesos. Much of it was in silver and too heavy to carry away. But some of the black slaves with a convoy switched sides and pointed the Cimarrones to the mules with gold. The raiders packed about 100,000 pesos worth of gold for carrying away, and in about two hours hastily buried 15 tons of captured silver. They had to move fast, though, because some of the Spanish and the convoy had fled toward the nearby town, and the authorities wasted no time in raising a posse. The pirates fled as fast as one can, hauling treasure on foot, to the point along the coast where they were to rendezvous with their pinnaces. The testu, dying from his wound, could not keep up, and two gallant Frenchmen stayed behind with him so that he would not die alone. A fourth Frenchman, Jacques Lawrence, had gotten drunk. One can now imagine the value of a no-drinking rule on pirate outings, and wandered off into the woods. On April 3rd, two days later, the raiders peered out of the woods at the designated rendezvous along the coast, 
only to see seven oared Spanish boats with 85 musketeers and small artillery floating offshore. The English pinnaces were nowhere to be seen, and the passe from Nombre de Dios could not be far behind. Rock, meet hard place. But wait, the Spanish had gotten there too soon, had already searched the estuary, concluded that the pirates had already escaped, and soon sailed away. But where were Drake's ships? He could only conclude that they were still at his base some miles down the coast. Deciding that the trip overland was too arduous, Drake directed his men to build a raft, and Drake, another Englishman, and two French sailors who were good swimmers, paddled out to sea and set off down the coast. They traveled only a few miles before they reached Drake's ships. The fleet quickly made for the rendezvous, and soon the English, French, Cimarrones, and Treasure were all on board and sailing to safety along the coast. Along the way, Drake recovered the pinnaces and the loot they had on board. The fleet stopped along the coast of Colombia to buff up the ships for the journey home. They needed to be careened, which meant beaching them and scraping all the stuff off the side and applying new tar and that kind of stuff. And so it came time for Drake and his men to part company with the Cimarrones still on board. Drake invited Pedro and three of his lieutenants to rummage aboard his ships to choose gifts for themselves. Pedro being nobody's fool and knowing his worth, asked for the gold scimitar which Captain Le Testu had given Drake. By all accounts, Drake would have preferred to keep it, but Pedro deserved no less, and in fact much more, so Drake gave it to him. Meanwhile, the Spanish administration in the Caribbean was now extremely anxious. In addition to covering its ample bureaucratic rear and petitioned the crown for a much bigger fleet to patrol the Caribbean. Philip II now had a name to attach to this daring, insolent English corsair, and he was not at all amused. Why is he still alive? I don't know. He shouldn't be alive. It vexes me. I'm terribly vexed. Philip had no idea how much more vexed he was soon to become, for Drake was already conceiving his next mission, one that would take him to the end of the world and back. Drake made it back to Plymouth on August 9th, 1573, and now a doubly rich man on the brink of fame well beyond his West Country kith and kin. We shall see next week, or maybe the week after, what he would do with that fame. Before we conclude this week's episode, there are a few loose ends to wrap up. Le Testu died either of his wounds or at the hands of the Spanish. They killed one of the two Frenchmen who stayed with Le Testu, but the other got away. We do not know exactly how it was that the raiders were able to get away when their point of rendezvous had been discovered, but it seems to come down to two strokes of luck. First, the Spanish chasing Drake and his allies from Nombre de Dios stopped to dig up the 15 tons of silver that Drake had hastily buried. They did not take up the pursuit again for a day or two, by which time Team Drake was out of reach. Meanwhile, the musketeers spotted offshore the rendezvous point had gotten there too fast and were leaving just as Drake's men peered out of the forest at them. 
Given all the bad luck Drake had suffered earlier on the mission, getting shot in the leg on the first raid and having the February ambush blown by the drunken sailor, he had, one might say, earned his hard six. Thank you again for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please spread the word on social media. Thank you to those who have done already. And tell all your coolest friends, or maybe the less cool friends. As usual, if you have questions, comments, corrections, pats on the back, or eruptions of outrage, please send me an email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or a message via our Facebook page, which can be found by searching at History of the Americans or comment on our website, which is www.thehistoryoftheamericans.com.